story from Second Samuel chapter 9. It's where we're going to start today. Um, and you'll get to hear it again uh, during our response time. But before we get started, and actually before I prayed, I just I wanted to play something for you guys. I thought, I thought this might be a good way to start. I brought my jamming boombox from home. I, I hope you can hear it. If you can't, I'll lean in with my Backstreet's Back microphone that Brad's letting me borrow. All right, let me see. Here we go. It's going to be a situation where you're kind of at a conference in a room with you know, hundreds or thousands of people. But all I see last week in a small room with a guy that's kind of been a mentor from afar, Mark Dever, to me for, for several years now. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. So please pray for me as I travel. And next Sunday, uh, Hawk will be preaching. And so he's going to uh, preach kind of a standalone message outside of Colossians or maybe in Colossians or we've been joking about that. But um, I told them don't do Colossians because then I'll have to come back and clean up the mess. Um, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was hilarious. Um, I wasn't even here. I was serving children while Brad was publicly mocking me. <clears throat> so... In effort to make sure that he has a little bit of a mess to clean up, I just want you guys to know today that salvation can be attained by works. Um, Dogs go to heaven, but cats don't make the cut. And uh, I don't know, maybe some other things I'll throw in there. So anyway, let's let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you um, because this is the day that the Lord has made. And Father, I just pray that we would rejoice and we would be glad in it as we open up your word. Father, how can we go wrong? I, I just pray that, Lord, that you would enable me to do what is not possible in and of my flesh, and that is bring out truth. And so, Father, I just pray um, from wall to wall in this room, in fact, in every room, that your Holy Spirit would be so apparent and so preeminent that your truth is what comes out. And so, Father, I pray, as Brad often says, that you would help us put our hearts in a place that your Holy Spirit can mold and shape. And, Lord, we just, we just give you this time. Uh, you're what we're seeking after. And I pray, Lord, that as we seek you, as your word says, we would be found by you as well. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, well, I'm glad. Is that all right or is it bum? It's Okay. I am not used to this thing, um, and I really do feel a little bit like a Backstreet Boy up here with, like, my dark jeans, and I, Karen Ann told me, just treat it like youth, and I was like, okay, baby, I'll just treat it like youth, and then she was like, you're not wearing a tie, and I was like, you just told me to treat it like, and she was like, well, why do you think we went and got that nice new belt yesterday, and I said, because mine was falling apart, communication, it's a wonderful thing, um, I, before I get started, I did want to thank you. I've had uh, a couple emails come in. Uh, a number of folks stop me and just say, we've been praying for you uh, when it, uh, as it pertains to what we've been studying in high school, which is homosexuality. We started with it last week, and we're actually going to be continuing with it this week. The kids had a number of really good questions, and obviously it's a very big and broad topic. And so I just ask that you would continue to pray for that. That'll be Wednesday from uh, 6.30 to 8. And then tonight, uh, middle school will be meeting at the point where we're talking about how is it that we hear from God in prayer, uh, and we'll be doing that tonight. So anyway... Let's get started. All right, and you'll notice one thing. I'm not going to highlight it. 
the the way that I do presentations is a little bit different than Brad's. Um, and so if you're in the back and you can't see it, I apologize. I wasn't able to try it until we got here today, but I think you'll be able to. Today, our main texts, if you want to flip there now, are going to be Ephesians chapter 2 and Titus chapter 2. I'm actually going to be starting, however, and you can turn... Turn there if you'd like. I'm actually going to be starting in 2 Samuel chapter 9, which is the story of Mephibosheth. That story is what the song that was just played for offertory was written about. And so let's go ahead um, and we will move on to the story of Mephibosheth. Now this next picture right up here, well, maybe not. Hit back. We've tried this one. There it is. Okay. This right here, I just kind of wanted to show you. what we have here is we have Mephibosheth the cripple coming before David. And you'll understand why in a moment that's important. But here we go. Second Samuel chapter 9. And I'm going to turn theirs. Well and read out of mine. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The reason David is asking this question is because he promised his best friend at the time, Jonathan, also the, the king at the time, Saul, that when David became king, he would still take care of Jonathan's family. Now, to give you just a little bit of background leading up to this point, if you were in chapter 4, verse 4, you would hear this. Saul and Jonathan both fall in battle. Upon hearing that, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, has just lost his father and his grandfather. He's an apparent heir to the throne. And so that somebody doesn't come and kill him, his nurse picks him up. He's only about five years old at this time and starts running out the door with him. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that in Scripture it says that in her haste she stumbled and she dropped baby Mephibosheth, who's five years old, not like crazy small, but still small enough. Now, whether he landed on his head or he had kind of a spinal injury, we don't know. But what we do know is it says from that point on, he was lame for the rest of his life, unable to walk. And obviously these are the days without wheelchairs, without wheelchair ramps. It immediately downgraded you to a lower class citizen because you were not able to take care of yourself and do things that the rest of the culture typically was. So Fast forwarding now, David has become king and he's looking for someone, uh, one of Jonathan's descendants that he said he was going to show kindness to. And it goes on, it says, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And he gives him uh, the whereabouts. And then in verse 6, it says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. To give you kind of the, I'm sorry, this thing's, okay. To give you kind of the understanding of what just happened there, when a dynasty would take over, they would go through and they would eradicate anyone else from the previous dynasty so that there wasn't a kind of a power struggle or a would be heir. Mephibosheth is the only one left, and he's now being called into the presence of the the current king. As he's going there, 
he is probably simply expecting execution. That's how it was done. He may not have known this vow that David made with his father Jonathan. And even if he did, he may not have known if David would honor it. And so he can't even walk before the king on, the, on his own. He's carried in and he's set before King David expecting death. And one of the reasons we know this is because David says, don't fear. He had every reason to fear. And then David goes one step further. And not only, not only does, he does, does he not destroy him, but instead he picks him up and he puts him at a royal position. And he seats him at his own table. The table where his own sons and only his own sons would have sat. And it goes on and it says this in verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Now why do I tell you this story? Because before we can go forward, this story I'm telling you to prime the pump for us moving in to Ephesians chapter 2. Before we can go forward with the Lord in anything, we have to first remember where we were. We have to remember who we were. I I, I was working at a camp. Um, Gracious, I don't remember how long ago this was. And a buddy of mine, um, I'm not going to use his name. A buddy of mine was coming to the camp with us, but I, I think I think he has cerebral cere- I can never say it correctly cerebral palsy. He's in a wheelchair, wheelchair bound. He has some other difficulties that he has to work over. And so I had to sit with his mom for a little while, and she said, "Okay, if he's going to go and you're going to take care of him, it's going to look like this and this and that." And I remember being so humbled because here he was my age, maybe just a few years younger, unable to walk. He could communicate fine, loved girls. Um, boy, did he love, it was like, all right, that's enough, okay. <clears throat> but I remember having to help him brush his teeth. I remember having to lean down and lift him so that he could use the restroom. And then in what must be one of the most humiliating and difficult things for him he wasn't able to bathe himself. And so I served him by bathing him. And I think sometimes because of the culture that we were born in, I was, I, I was about born in a pew. I, I cannot remember not going to church. I lived at church. It's where I played. And so when I, when I look back at my life, I can, I, I can honestly say that it feels like I've been a part of God's family my whole life. And I think because of our culture, our, whether it's our southern culture or our church-going culture, Brad says stuff like this because your dad was a deacon or granddad started this church is bigger than your church dog. I can't remember what he says. Something like that. Church. We feel like we're a part of something that requires something more than just ourselves or our attendance. What it requires is for us to remember where we were. Unable to go to the king on our own. By good works, being smart enough or working hard enough. 
but we were lame and broken, dirty. In fact, in this passage, Mephibosheth looks up to King David and he says, why would you consider me? Why would you show favor to a dead dog like me? What's amazing about that term, as I've been studying the the homosexuality issue that we've been talking about on Wednesday, the term dog was the same term used for the unholiness of the sodomites in Genesis, those who practice homosexuality. And so what Mephibosheth is saying is, even though he was an heir, he says, I recognize that I am a dead dog, unworthy, dirty, to come before you, my king. And whether we recognize it or not, that is our position as well. Broken and unable to move forward. And and I read this to you. Let's go ahead and go forward. Um, Keep going a couple. One more. And there it is. Moving forward into Ephesians 2, we have to remember who we were. And now if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, and he says this. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In the first chapter, right before writing this, Paul talks about how encouraged he is about what's going on in the church in Ephesus. How much he appreciates their good works. He says, I know that you're saved, but he doesn't neglect this point as their pastor. He says, don't forget where you were. You were children of wrath. And then... He says in verse 4, but God, in one of the most powerful two words that we have in Scripture, where we were, but God, and then this, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and did what? He seated us with him. He picked us up and he carried us to his table. And he sat us there like his son or like his daughter. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might, why did he do this for you and I? Why did he save us? Why did he pull us out of the truck that was heading for us, that is the destruction, that is the wrath of God? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Excuse me, toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. When when, um, I I used to do, I'm about to lose a bunch of my seniors. um, Some of which I've been working with since they were about, gracious, I don't know what. How old was Shaw? Where's Karen Ann? I'm looking. There she is. Like what? Fifth grade. Um, When Karen Ann and I started dating, her little brother, Shaw, was in about the fifth grade. And it wasn't long. What? I'm wrong. Oh, Wow. Getting older. Um, 
He's in the second grade. Now he's about, anyway, he was probably in about the fifth grade when I started doing a little discipleship thing with him. Uh, Brandon, one of my very good buddies, and I, we would get together with he and Hunter and Bo. Um, sometimes there would be some other. And they were about 12 or 13 years old. And this was the verse that I got them to memorize. And to this day, they can still do it. I'm so, I'm so proud of them for that. But I'm about to lose all of them. They're seniors this year. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's where you were, but God, and praise be to God, he has moved you here. And now, why? Who we were, who we are, what we do. And here's what he says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, he, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before you were born, before you walked through that door, before you made a step towards Christ at all, Christ said, I have a job for you to do. And only for you to do. Go ahead and go out who we were, who we are, and what we do. And now Paul goes in. I love Paul. Um, he's so much like a preacher. I was, I was talking to the, to the youth the other day, and like halfway through, he was like, finally, and then he kept going and going. You know how pastors do? They're like, okay, this is my last point. And then it's like 15 minutes have passed, and they're like, didn't you just say last point? I'll try not to pull that on y'all today. But what Paul does do is what I like to call the pastoral repeat. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay, let me give you an example. Um, okay, let's say this Wednesday, this will probably happen. One of the students says something like, one of, my, one of my friends is struggling with homosexuality. What should I say to them? And I would say something to the effect of, it's only through the power, it's only through the blood of Christ, through the power of the cross, that the, per, that the person who is struggling with homosexuality can be freed, can be freed from that sin. But it is up to you to show them Christ. It's up to you to show them Christ. It's up to you. That's the pastoral repeat. Okay? Y'all have seen this before, I assume? Okay? And it actually has a biblical mandate. It's not just something that one pastor came up with and everybody was like, oh, that's great. I'm going to have works. Okay? If you go to Isaiah, if you go to Revelations, one of the most common is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the reason that it's repeated three times is in biblical language, that is more powerful than an exclamation point. And so when somebody's making the point, uh, like in Isaiah, for them to say God is holy. Holy, holy is much more powerful than saying God is holy. That's just how they did it back then. And so Paul now is going to hit the pastoral repeat button. And in the exact same chapter, he's going to just pick up and he's going to say, okay, I told you who we were and I've told you who we are and I've told you what we need to do. So pastoral repeat, let me again tell you who we were, tell you. And and so here he goes. You got to love this. So in verse 11, he says, therefore, 
Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Let me rearrange some of the words so that will make a little more sense. Gentiles meaning non-Jew, uncircumcision, when they were called that meant unholy and the circumcision meant God's people. So it would read something like this. Therefore, remember that at one time you guys who were not Jews, who were called unholy by the people of God. That's what he's saying there. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Where we were. And then he goes on and he says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once, again, but now, but God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. I'm going to hold up this hand so you remember that he just used the word flesh. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And what he's writing now is he's saying, "Okay, so you want to make this about the flesh? You want to say you're holy if you're circumcised? You're not holy if you aren't? He goes on, he says, no, let me tell you, you want to make it about the flesh? Fine. And I could see Paul getting kind of frustrated and angry at this point, saying, fine, you want to make it about the flesh? You can. But it's not your flesh and your circumcision making you holy. It's not his flesh and his lack of a circumcision making him unholy. The flesh that you concentrate on is the broken flesh of Christ that unites you to. You are a church. You are a body. Not this person over there and this person over here. And I think that he would say that to many of our churches today. I, I think he would say something to the effect of this place was called to be one. Not this group of people over here and this group of people over here. Not just the men of this age group getting together and the women in this age group getting together. And us putting the children over here and the older children here and the youth here and saying, okay, somebody do it. But we are one. The person sitting in front of you, behind you, to the left and to the right is as much of your responsibility Almost as it is Brad's or mine or Reynolds. According to God's word. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall. You want to make it about flesh? Make it about Christ. So where do we go, Paul? What is our work to do? Well, he simply says this. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
We are to be the church. We are to be the temple. Not Zoo City. As exciting as that is, this new building is nothing if we are not God's temple. It doesn't matter how much ministry can radiate from that place in concentric circles, just hitting heart after heart after heart for the gospel, if what is inside it is not greater than what has been built around it. We are to grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what we're to be. And what that means, ultimately, I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself. I am. So I'm going to pause right there. We're going to go to Titus chapter 2. All right, Titus chapter 2. How is it? How? 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 There it is. It was so funny. Sarah Ann is, um, everybody give Sarah Ann a big hand. She's running. She's running the presentation day. She always runs them for me at youth. But at youth, like the kids are no further back than like the third screen. So the fact that she can't see anything and has horrible vision and just sees like a blur moving around up here is not usually a problem. So anyway, I love you. Thank you. All right. So how do we do this? Titus chapter two. All right. Flip there with me if you would. Titus chapter 2. Excellent. But as for you, and by the way, some of this may rub against us. Sorry, it's God's word. Here we go. If you don't like it, you came to the wrong place as we read the Bible. All right. Verse 1. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. How do we do this? How are we built together as a church? Older men, time check. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. I love that it says older because there's no like... You know, if you're 28, you need to be here. If, if you consider yourself, if you look around and you consider yourself older men, this is what God's word is saying to you. To be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves of much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. How do we do this? We turn away from ourselves and we say, how can I encourage this young man. If you're an older man, you look for a younger man that needs an older man. If you're an older woman, you look for a younger woman who needs an older woman to say, this is what walking with Christ looks like, and I don't do it perfect, but this is what it's about. The, those same boys that are about to graduate. Um, Bill Harrison is somewhere. I saw him. There's Bill. Bill Harrison, um, 
knows these boys. In fact, he was coming to youth when uh, I was doing youth gracious six, seven years ago, I think. And he's known them since they were little. And they greatly respect Bill, and I'll tell you why. It's not because he's taught them some lesson, and it's not because he sat down on a grassy knoll and he said, Now gather around, children, let me read to you from... It's not because of that. It's because he threw a football with them after youth. It's because he, he, he didn't mind making a fool out of himself and playing kickball and running three miles an hour at his top speed. <laughs> you should come watch a softball game. Um, the reason they greatly respect him is because they know that he cares about them because he invested in their life. He showed up and he was there. And he didn't wait and say, I need to be some guy with a a youth pastor degree, or I need to have this teaching gift, or I need to be able to play this instrument. No, I'm just who I am, and here I go. And those boys greatly respect him, to the point that if they're dating a girl, he can grab them by the back of the collar and be like, don't be an idiot. Yes, Mr. Bill. I I mean, that's that's what it is. I, I know that Otis does things very similar to that. And it's kind of a whole deal going. I mean, right now it's happening in kids' church, beginners' kids' church, and things like that. In fact, I hate to keep going back to homosexuality, but I've been studying it for a while now. The one thing that that they say is the greatest deterrent to one of your children struggling with same-sex attraction is simply this. Having a meaningful, loving relationship by a same-sex person that is older. That's what they say. Which is why so many of our fatherless homes need us as the church to be what God calls us to be in, in saying that he is himself a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow. That's not just his job. We are the hands and feet. That's not Reynolds' job. That's not Brad's job. That's not my job. In fact, if I can go a step further, this is dangerous for me to say. Reynolds, can you earmuffs for just a minute? Please? Okay. If, if we were doing, if our culture, if our church's culture was doing what we were called to be, my job would be unnecessary. That's very dangerous for me to say as we're moving into a new building and tightening our financial belts. So no notes on that one, please. I love my job. Teaching and working with students is the greatest and the most joy that I have in my life. It's it's what I I know it's what God has called me to do. But I, I, I do promise you this. I would go and sell cars nine to five or I would pick up whatever job I could. If doing that would make our church a place in which my job was unnecessary anyway. I do it happily. And I love what I do. But that is what we have been called. And, and I'm not saying that to like heap conviction on us. Because to, to be very honest with us, we have a lot of amazing people who are doing amazing things for God and for the kingdom. But... I think sometimes we write it off like, well, if I know, you know, if I know this person's name, then I'm a part of God's body. Like if I know the names, I still struggle with that. Or if we go out to lunch, then we're doing our job being a part of God's family. 
And it's not that any of those things are bad. If you have lunch plans with somebody around here, great. I, I'm not saying don't. Bettestini's has over is wonderful. I got to ride a horse last week. Awesome. Um, <laughs> but what is of greater importance than knowing people's names? What's of greater importance than checking it off? Oh, I went out to lunch with somebody and talked. Is answering the question, am I investing in someone's life in the church? Am I pouring it out for Christ and for the gospel? And then he goes on and he says this, skipping down a little bit. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now, this verse, it's going back to the intentional uh, part of Titus 2 where it's actually talking about men who are interested, sorry, men who are interested in the, there we go, men who are interested in becoming elders in the church. But still, we should be doing what we can to be a model of good works. He goes on. And he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself why did he do it? To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what it's about. It's about remembering where we were, that we had to be carried to the table, that we were dirty and filthy and in need of a Savior, and recognizing what he did by calling us his son or calling us his daughter. But it doesn't stop there. We don't show up to the table like some college student when I was in college or a high school student, we used to, when I would spend the night at my best friend's house, his mom just knew you stock the pantry with double stuffed Oreos and don't worry about buying the cans because they're just going to carry the two liters down anyway. All right. And we would walk in like a swarm of locusts and we would go through that pantry and we would end up going downstairs and playing our video, just mooching. I mean, and Unbelievable. I, I do not know what the budget looked like in that household for double stuffed Oreos and Doritos. It was big. Big. Especially in the summer when we didn't have to go to school. But we're not called to go to God's table and mooch and just sit there and stuff ourselves. We're called to God's table because we're a part of his family because he has a work for us to do. I, it was about, if I remember exactly, about four nights ago, it was 2.53 in the morning. Ellis had woken up and started screaming, which I think is the protocol for when you wake up and you're a baby. So he wakes up, starts screaming, and I get up and start, you know, messing with him, trying to get him to go back to sleep. And so I'm awake, can't do anything else. I, I can't fall asleep for a little while, so I start reading. And I, I grabbed this article. We just had an article sitting around. And it was called Like Father, Like Son. And I, I wanted to read I wanted to read a piece of it for you. It says this. The other day I'm I'm gonna cut in and out, so I'm not plagiarizing or nervous. The other day I was downtown, which in our neck of the woods means two blocks of stores on the highway 
and half of them empty. I had gassed up at one of the two stations and I was about to get in my car when I noticed a duo emerge from the store. I had to stop and stare at the beautiful humor. Father and 10-year-old son were so identical you could have matched them up out of a thousand daddies and a thousand sons. They sported the same pointed noses and rounded chins. Their blushed cheeks and tall foreheads were perfect copies. Their dark, narrow eyes finished out their common genetic display. They even walked the same, carrying a Coke and some snack. Their dirty, work-worn pants sagged beneath their bellies in the same manner, and the only difference between their rounded shoulders was proportion, a 200-pounder and a 75-pounder. I wondered how the boy escaped getting any traits from his mother. He looked like a clone of his dad. As I stood there smiling, he's looking at his son and his son's son. As I stood there smiling, I remembered the many good times I shared with my young sons and daughters. All the stores we entered, rides in old pickup trucks, chores performed together, helping me on the job, going fishing, hunting. And then the bell started ringing again. The bell in my head that goes off when I see an example of what is missing in families today. That little clone 10-year-old was emotionally as sturdy as a cedar fence post. I could see relaxed contentment written all over him. He was not a troublesome kid who did things to get attention. He was a little man with responsibility. He respected his daddy, and his daddy respected him. They were a team. Fathers, there's no substitute for time spent with your sons. Boys do not want to sit in front of you and have serious talks. Boys will talk when all eyes are focused on the yellow and white lines on the highway. They will talk when they have a splitting maul in their hands and you're stacking the firewood they split. Words about duty and doing the right thing and being responsible mean little compared to the example you manifest day after day and year after year. Some of these old country fathers never knowingly tried to teach their boys anything, but they managed to duplicate their own character and personality in their sons by means of fellowship. The greatest privilege and opportunity this life affords a man is a second, third, however many kids you have, opportunity to mold a man fit for the kingdom of God. Our personal mistakes and shortcomings can be corrected in our sons. We can give God a better childhood, youth, and manhood than our own. We make an indelible contribution to eternity. What an incredible responsibility. And here I am with my son, just crying. He was crying. I wasn't crying. I'm not that emotional. Reading this, saying, what a responsibility. And that is what God speaks to us. It's what he says in Ephesians 2. It's what he says in Titus 2. It is our responsibility to be about God's work. It's our responsibility. To be about his work. Pastoral repeat. Let me get um, let me get the guys to go ahead and come up for to uh, close us out in worship. And while they do, I'm going to flip. You don't have to go there. I'm going to go to Galatians chapter six, verse nine. I'm going to read that to you guys. If it's not about knowing names, if it's not just about eating lunch with folks after church, if it's really about investing our lives in others, then I guess I just ask you the question, where are you today? Where are you right now? Stokes and the team are going to play that 
song carried to the table. And I wonder how many of us, maybe we just thought we were a part of church culture, but we were trying to do it on our own, trying to be good enough or work at it hard enough or whatever. When what we need to do is just say, Father, carry me. Just pick me up and carry me because I can't do it on my own. I wonder if that's some of us this morning. And maybe, maybe that isn't you. Maybe you don't need to be carried to the table. Maybe Christ has done that in your life already. But maybe you've just been mooching off of his table. You've showed up and you said, thanks God, I love being your son. I love being your daughter. I love my fire insurance and you are my savior. But he has never become your Lord. It's been about fire insurance or just being in a good position. And, we've, and you've walked to the table like some selfish it's all about me type of Christianity. And God wants to shake you from that and say there is so much more if you would take your head off of the table and look at the people around you. And maybe you've been carried to the table. And maybe you are about God's work. And if you are, I just want to read this. I just want to encourage you today. And I want this, this time of response to be a joy for you. Galatians 6, 9 and 10 says this. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So you're working with this kid and you've been working with him for months after months and year after year. And you don't know how it's going to turn out. Or you've been, you've been dealing with the same problem with your child and you just, it, it's just not getting any better. Or maybe you're, you're partnering and you've put your arm around this person and you've said, I'm going to walk with you through this difficulty and it just keeps getting darker and darker and darker and you can't see the light at the end. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So whatever it is, just meet God where you are. And let Him carry you. Let Him encourage you. Let Him put you where He has called you to be all along before the foundations of this world were ever set. Let's pray. Father, as we worship you, your word tells us that you seek worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Father, it's not some emotional deal. It's just about the truth of where we are and where you call us to be and what you've done for us by the blood of Christ on the cross. So, Father, I pray that you would carry those who are lame. I pray that you would clean those who are dirty. I pray that you would spur into good works those who have been sitting at the table just selfishly having a Savior, but never serving a Lord. 
And I pray that you would encourage those who have been doing your work in love and steadfastness and need your promise that you hold all things together and that you work all things together for your good, that we would not give up, but that at the proper time, when you will be most glorified, not when it's comfortable or easy for us, but when you will be most glorified, that change, that life will occur. Father, I pray that you would do this for the glory of your own name as we worship you today.